You're tuned to All Volunteer Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. They aren't making any more water to appropriate an adage that realtors use in relation to land. On land, fresh water is plentiful in some parts of the world, but very scarce in others. The western United States is an area where there's always been a limited supply. And Professor Don Negri says since people started using more of it, we've set legal limits on who has rights to the water. But there isn't as much water available as the laws say we can use. The Willamette University History Department retiree reviewed a big geographical region, the Klamath Basin, and its water history with an overview of what we face with more need than supply of clean water. Welcome. I'm Ron Ekes, president of Salem City Club. I'm glad that you can join us today for the second program in our 2021 and 2022 program season. This will be our 55th year, and we had hoped to be able to start the new year with in-person programs. But due to the ongoing pandemic, we will be continuing with our presentation of virtual programs. However, our commitment to the City Club mission remains the same, to provide nonpartisan civil discourse on important civic issues. We will be presenting programs every two weeks this fall. We hope you will sign up and join us. You can visit SalemCityClub.com for more information and to register. Thank you to our members, volunteers, and friends who continue to support Salem City Club. Your memberships and donations enable us to continue presenting these programs. Thanks as well to Spire Management for the association services they provide. In addition, Salem City Club also depends on the generous support of our supporting business partners, KMUZ Community Radio, Lou Jean Fobert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home, and Busy Bees Real Estate. And now today's program lead, Russ Beaton, will introduce our speaker. Thank you, Ron, and welcome to all City Club members and guests. Clearly, we're in the middle of a drought. Uh, as we here in the West set new records each year for millions of acres burned, in the eastern part of the country, in the last few weeks, from torrential rains, we've actually had drownings in Houston, New Orleans, Tennessee, and New Jersey. One hour in Central Park had more, a couple of weeks ago, had more rainfall than we've had in the last three months, aggregately. Today, we're going to look at a case study for perhaps understanding a little bit more and a little bit more in general about what we might be able to do as we face a future of, of serious water shortages. Uh, we're looking at a, at a study that Dr. Don Negri, recently retired of Willamette University, has done on the Klamath Basin. The Klamath Basin is a uniquely good case study for looking at drought uh, because virtually all the issues are there. Salmon runs, hydroelectric, tribes, big agriculture, family agriculture, um, domestic users, it's pretty much all there. But in introducing our speaker, uh, Dr. Don Negri, as a PhD from the University of Michigan, joined the Willamette faculty in the economics department in 1990, where he came to us immediately from uh, as a researcher at the Rand Corporation. I've got to offer a, a personal disclosure as I introduced Don since since he joined the faculty in 1990, he's been one of my favorite colleagues in the economics department as well as one of my favorite people. Uh, the estimation of Dr. Negri goes beyond the Department of Economics since for many of the years he has served here, he was also the Associate Dean of the College of Liberal Arts. So we have, I've served as his department chairman, he has served as my department chairman. So it's with great pleasure as 
take a look at this Klamath River Basin, I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Don Negri. Don, take it away. Thank you, Russ. Back at you. Good to see you. Glad to be here. And uh, thank you all for inviting me to, uh, uh, to this presentation. So let me get my PowerPoint up here and going. Um, could somebody give me a thumbs up that you can hear me and that I'm coming through? Anybody? There we go. All right. All right. Sharing my screen. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to talk to you today about uh, the Klamath Basin, um, basically as a microcosm of all of the uh, water scarcity and conflicts that exist over water in the Western United States. Um, at the risk of coming to the conclusion at the very beginning, um, what you will learn is that more water has been allocated to users than there is water available. And that generates a significant amount of hardship and uh, economic loss and um, uh, oops. <clears throat> so how does, we're going to go to, how does that conflict uh, arise? And I'm going to back up in time and look at the United States and the evolution of uh, water law in order to try to understand uh, how we got ourselves into this mess. So here you see a picture of average water or average rainfall in the United States. Uh, east and west. To the west of the 100th meridian, uh, we have a very arid uh, land. And to the east of the, approximately the 100th meridian, uh, we have plentiful water. And what happens is, as the United States expands from east to west, the uh, water allocation mechanisms that develop, uh, develop differently for the east where water is plentiful than it does for the West where water is relatively scarce. And you can see the disparity in rainfall uh, between East and West, and that rainfall disparity will generate quite different water allocation mechanisms. All right, so uh, water what mechanism, set of rules or institutions uh, will determine who gets what water and how much? So um, we're gonna look a little bit at water rights and the water rights doctrines uh, eventually evolved from 18th century common law. And the questions I would like you to keep in mind as we go through all these slides is two, twofold. Does the water allocation mechanism, that is the water law, allocate water efficiently amongst the users? And from an economic point of view, that is, does the water go to its highest valued use? Or is it allocated in some other way that doesn't actually efficiently allocate the water? And the second question is, is the allocation ethical or just? And those are very two very different questions, but two which I would like you to keep in mind as we go uh, through the slides. All right, so pressing the button. Let's start with the Eastern United States where water is plentiful. Uh, 18th century common law led to what is called the riparian doctrine of water allocation. The riparian doctrine says that if you are living or located next to the bank of a natural resource, you can use that water so long as you do not impair its quality or its quantity. In the Eastern United States with such plentiful water, impairing the quantity and quality, at least historically, uh, was not an issue. And thus there was plenty of water and there was very little scarcity. And it was not really a scarcity and allocation problem under the riparian doctrine. Water use in, under the doctrine was tied to the land and it could not be separated or transferred essentially meaning that if you owned a piece of land where water uh, traveled through your property, as long as you did not uh, impair its quantity or quality, you were free to use it as, as you wished. That doctrine does not work 
in the Western United States. Western United States is arid. Water is located in relatively smaller areas. And if you're gonna use the water for an industry, agriculture, mining, uh, domestic, or any other use, that water needs to be transported from its location to some other location where it can be used. And that caused an evolution of the water rights laws to be different from those used in the East. Now here's a picture of two things. Uh, first, there's the mining operations that evolved in the uh, West where huge amounts of water were necessary in order to begin mining in the 19th century. And secondly, uh, as an effort to settle the West, the United States government set up uh, the, uh, among other laws, the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act gave families or applicants 160 acres free to farm and live on if they were willing to take a homestead and move to the West. And the United States government in that law provided over 160 million acres of homesteads. But the problem was most of those homesteads were not viable because they didn't have adequate water uh, to do any farming. So even though there was great encouragement for Western migration uh, amongst the Homestead Act and others like it. Um, it was not particularly successful uh, because of the arid conditions of the West. All right, so a new uh, a, a doctrine, a new law evolved in the Western United States, which is called the prior appropriation. Under the prior appropriation doctrine, one is able to divert water from its source uh, to a land ownership, a different adjacent land ownership. The water, however, is deemed to be owned by the state. And the third element is the law says first in time, first in right. And let me explain that. If I divert water from a river uh, to my agricultural land and I set in law by uh, taking by establishing a water right with the state, a certain amount of water, then I am entitled to that water prior to anybody who subsequently establishes a water right. If I'm first in time, I'm first in right. No matter whether that person is upstream or downstream, I get my water before any subsequent uh, established water rights get their water. And that, is, that allows me to make an investment in the transportation facilities that get the water to and from my property. Without that protection, I'm unlikely to be able to make the investment in the water control facilities, the diversion facilities that would allow me to irrigate my land. So first in time, first in right is an essential component of the prior appropriation doctrine. All right, next, the right to use the water in the prior appropriation doctrine is granted permanently so long as it's put to beneficial use. Now that word beneficial use has been adjudicated uh, for, for years and years and years, and it has been interpreted fairly broadly. Uh, <clears throat> so beneficial use means that you're pulling the water out and doing something uh, with it that appears to be at least from the legal definition uh, beneficial. Use it or lose it is <clears throat> if, for a, if for any reason you do not use the water that you're allocated from your water right uh, over a period of a couple years, then that water right reverts back to the state. If you don't use it, you will lose it. Uh, typically, also water rights are non-transferable. That is once the water right gets attached to the land, uh, for which it's diverted, it cannot be transferred elsewhere. That law has changed in the last couple decades, but we'll go into that another time. <clears throat> and one more thing, uh, because there's a great deal of hardship associated with this, the water rights 
often get integrated into the price of the land. That is, once the land has a water right attached to it, the value of that land is not only the value of the land, but the, also the attached uh, water right, which generates uh, agricultural output. All right. Um, prior appropriation, um, hold on. Uh, prior appropriation has its significant problems, uh, especially since uh, in the era of increased scarcity in the West, the explosion of demand, uh, climate change, uh, increased um, uh, out and environmental preservation, the mechanism of allocating water under the prior appropriation doctrine has problems. Use it or lose it. Well, uh, once you've established that right, you have no incentive to conserve or return water back to the source. Uh, because once you reduce that amount of water that you use, it's lost back to the state and the value to you is gone. Water is not efficiently allocated uh, in a water short year. First in time, first in right. It doesn't say who has the most valuable use of the water. It's all about who got in first and who gets their water prior to other individuals. And lack of ownership limits transferability. That is, if I have reason that I want, maybe want to sell my water to a domestic use in, for example, the city of Klamath Falls because they don't have any domestic water, then the prior appropriation doctrine also limits that ability to transfer. So what we get is uh, an indication, at least at this point, that water is not particularly efficiently allocated uh, <coughs> uh, given the governance of the water rights system. Yes, okay. <clears throat> finally, I, finally, um, there is no provision for in-stream uses of water, uh, fish, wildlife habitat, there is no water rights provided for uh, fish or wildlife. It's only uses that divert water uh, from the source. So that, again, during an era of increasing imp importance of environmental preservation, uh, again, the water rights law begins to fail to protect habitat and wildlife. The government is aware uh, at the turn of the century that Western migration is gonna depend upon the availability of irrigation. Uh, the incentives created haven't been very effective. And what happens is they pass a, a New Lands Reclamation Act that establishes the Bureau of Reclamation uh, to provide uh, irrigation infrastructure to the 17 Western states. And uh, quite a bit of irrigation infrastructure. Um, there are, the, over the series of years, of over 700 water storage dams, thousands of miles of canal, uh, 30 million acre feet of water are allocated to more than 10 million acres of cropland. Uh, and generally, the Bureau of Reclamation uh, provides that water at a price well below the market price of water, thus subsidizing uh, agriculture in the Western United States. The Klamath Project, which I'll talk about in a little bit, is one of those Bureau of Reclamation projects, and it was established in 1905 with water rights to the Klamath Basin uh, users uh, Bureau of Reclamation users, uh, based on a 1905 water right. Now, uh, turning now to uh, Western settlement again, that those laws, the um, Bureau of Reclamation and the water rights, oops, I'm sorry, Water Rights Act, what happens is uh, <clears throat> this begins to attract Western settlement into the Klamath Basin uh, Western set settlers uh, adopt the prior appropriation doctrine and they adopt the 19, those who apply adopt the 1905 
water rights, uh, first in time, first in right. However, the Native Americans uh, that have lived in the region since time immemorial uh, failed uh, in effect to um, establish any water rights prior to the arrival of the uh, Western white migration. Add a little bit of background and that notion of Western migration encouraged, uh, followed by the evolution of property rights and the prior appropriation doctrine. Uh, let's see how that plays out uh, in the con water conflict in the Klamath Basin and how that leads to uh, what I'm calling a, uh, a train wreck that involves a great deal of hardship uh, and uh, on many of the users in that area. All right, so, um, you know, we go from the 19th century uh, now to the 21st century, and we go from Western migration to over 78 million people uh, living uh, in the Western United States. We have additional scarcity. We have the expansion of agriculture. We have industrial use, more mining, a huge amount of growth of cities, uh, urban growth that is encroaching on wildlife, hydroelectric power covering the uh, Western United States and much of the uh, rivers of the West. We also have uh, climate change and a drought, a drought exacerbated by climate change. Life is uh, significantly different more than 100 years later. Not only that, the water quality has been degraded significantly. Now I'm gonna try this link to show you what drought looks like currently in the Western United States. And as you can see, uh, Oregon, and in particular, the areas around the Klamath Basin are pretty severely in drought mode. And the same is true for a lot of the West. If I press on that, you can see again, uh, the areas of significant drought, putting a, a great deal of stress on the allocation of water uh, across the entire Oregon area. There's drought. A hundred years later, we are in a significantly different uh, situation with respect to the expansion of all sorts of uh, water use. We have an increased scarcity, increased drought, and increased conflict. All right, so let's go look at specifically the Klamath Basin. Here you can see the Klamath Basin. It has about 10 million acres in the watershed area. Klamath Falls, I don't know if you've seen the cursor, but Klamath Falls is up here, just on the northern side of the border. A lot of the basin is uh, in the California region and the Klamath River flows out to the ocean uh, in Northern California. There are a number of tributary um, rivers and um, this is the area that is in significant drought currently and has been in significant drought in the past. So let's take a look at what happens. Let's look at the major stakeholders uh, in the Klamath uh, Basin. There, are, uh, there is 375,000 acres of irrigated farms. There are five Native American tribes in the region. There are five national wildlife refuges, uh, several endangered fish species, and I'll talk about some of these in a couple minutes. There is commercial tribal and recreational fishing, uh, both on the upper Klamath Lake and on the lower uh, Klamath River. Uh, there are a number of non-governmental organizations advocating for fish and wildlife. There are several government agencies that are development-oriented, or, or for example, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, which is a development-oriented um, entity trying to expand, at least initially, historically anyway, expand uh, uh, Western migration. Then there's a number of other government agencies that have conservation missions like the United States uh, Fish and Wildlife Service. 
Finally, there are uh, uh, four hydroelectric dams along the Klamath River that block salmon from migrating upstream. So you can see there's a lot of uh, uh, players in this uh, mess. Well, let's get back to the picture so that you can get a sense of where all these players are. On the upper right, the Klamath tribes uh, live around Upper Klamath Lake and they have uh, <clears throat> claim to the fishing rights in the Upper Klamath Lakes that involves suckerfish. On the lower lakes, you have, I mean, excuse me, on the lower river, you have the Yurok and Karuk tribes that depend heavily on salmon fishing uh, in the lower Klamath River and on the tributaries to the Klamath River. Uh, you have Pacific Corporate, corporate uh, Pacific Hydroelectric Corporation that has four dams uh, just south of the border uh, along the Klamath River. You have uh, five wildlife refuges in uh, Northern California, just south of the border. And, and then you have the several hundred thousand acres of uh, irrigated land irrigated by the Bureau of Reclamation in that box here. So those are all the players and they're all competing uh, for water that comes down that river, uh, primarily into uh, Klamath Lake and then down the river uh, and out to the ocean. Um, <clears throat> let's start with farming and irrigation. On the left-hand side, that is the primary headgate uh, to the Klamath project, that water flows out of the Klamath, River, uh, Klamath Lake and it flows to those uh, 1,000 plus acres. And the irrigation includes uh, mostly hay, alfalfa, potatoes, onions, um, <clears throat> and for which the farmers in that area, their livelihood depends upon uh, the availability of that irrigation water. That water is provided, at least in uh, the Bureau of Reclamation area, is provided by the Bureau Klamath Project, 200,000 acres, uh, an established 2000, uh, not established 1905 water right. There are uh, three storage dams, four diversion dams, oops, oops, I'm sorry, uh, 885 miles of canals, uh, 490 miles of uh, laterals. And the water is provided again at prices uh, below what the true opportunity cost of the water is, uh, thus in effect subsidizing uh, much of that agriculture. There are also 175,000 acres of uh, non-project water, um, mostly in the upper basin. So there are water users with water rights prior or at least above the Klamath River, uh, Klamath Lake uh, that have uh, water rights. Let's talk about the tribes and give you a little background on uh, the tribes. The Upper Basin tribes consist of the Klamath tribe and the Modoc tribe. Uh, they are primarily uh, interested in the suckerfish as a cultural icon in the Klamath Lake. Uh, they have for generations and generations uh, depended upon those suckerfish for uh, cultural and spiritual uh, uh, sustenance. Uh, in the lower basin, you have the Yurok, Hoopa, and Kurok tribes, and they are salmon fisher, fisheries. And uh, in the last several decades, uh, there is no longer a viable uh, salmon fishery in the, in, the salmon, in the Klamath River. All right, so <clears throat> tracing the history of the Klamath, uh, of the tribes in 1864, uh, there was a treaty signed by the United States, which provided uh, the tribes with 
uh, 2.2 million acres of reservation land. And the government discovered that, well, that's too much. They don't need all that. And it was then uh, reduced to 1 million acres. But the important part of that uh, uh, treaty was that the tribes were, uh, were guaranteed that they retained fishing and hunting rights on reservation lands. Uh, so at that point, uh, there is some um, documentation of the rights of the tribes to fishing and hunting rights in the area, uh, but there were no explicit uh, water rights allocated in that treaty. Then along comes the Winters Doctrine in 1908. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, Native Americans have perpetual uh, right to water um, and that their water right is reserved uh, and um, it cannot be overcome by the prior appropriation doctrine. This is a major uh, victory for the tribes because it establishes that they do not have to be part of the prior appropriation doctrine. And in effect, tribes in effect can be moved because they've been on that land for time immemorial. They move to the front of the prior appropriation line. You would think, but that's not exactly what happens. Uh, and even though there is a, a strong legal victory in 1908, it is uh, many years before those rights can be adequately exercised. And so what happens? 1954, well, if you give the Klamath tribes water rights and you have a uh, legal doctrine that says that they have the right, one way you in which you can terminate that right is simply by terminating the status of the tribe. So uh, rather than put them to the front of the line, 1954, Congress actually terminates the tribe's status and liquidates all of the tribe, tribal lands. Um, 1975, uh, the adjudication process for all of the conflicting water rights in the Klamath Basin uh, begins anew. And uh, 45 years later, there is still no resolution of who has first in time, first in right, who has rights to the water, who's at the top of the uh, push stack. 1983 is another major uh, victory for the tribes. And it goes back to the 1864 treaty. Uh, and it says essentially that Aboriginal water rights for lands that tribes occupied since time immemorial, they moved to the top of the uh, uh, allocation list, the um, historical list of water rights. So um, again, that was a uh, legal victory, but it really wasn't much of a practical victory uh, as the water rights then become now part of the adjudication process, which after 45 years are still going. Uh, then in 1986, the Klamath tribes get reinstated as an official uh, tribe. I wanna go back for a second uh, to the US Bureau of Reclamation and I reminding, and reminded myself that uh, I went down to the Bureau of Reclamation offices in the Klamath Basin uh, at one point simply to talk to them about the kinds of pressures that they're under in, in allocating the water and turning on and off the water to the irrigated acres. And the, the, when I walked into the uh, government building, small government building down there in Klamath Falls, uh, I encountered uh, a, uh, a gun, <coughs> a uh, water, uh, I, I encountered glass that prevented me from getting in there. And it was uh, bullet, bulletproof glass protecting the secretary uh, that was on the other side. So just uh, 
an indication of the of the uh, degree of conflict that exists in the area. All right, back. All right, now let's go to the uh, one of the other uh, constituents, the wildlife and wildlife refuges. Um, historically, the Upper Klamath uh, Basin is essentially the Everglades of the Western United States. Uh, historically, there are more birds that fly through that flyway uh, than anywhere else in the country. Uh, the Klamath Basin, uh, Pacific Flyway is the Everglades of the West. Uh, there, are, there were 350,000 acres of marshes, wetlands, uh, critical nesting areas for migrating waterfowl. Um, uh, let's see, uh, historically there are pictures of during spring and fall migration, uh, there are so many waterfall, waterfowl uh, flying through the air that it actually darkens the skies. Also in the shallow lakes, I've mentioned the, the uh, suckerfish, and what I have for you is a little picture of them for. Those are the suckerfish that exist in the upper Klamath Lake. Those are the culturally important uh, fish to the Klamath uh, tribes. It's President Theodore Roosevelt who establishes the National Wildlife Refuges, uh, not to protect wildlife necessarily, but uh, he liked to hunt birds and wanted to make sure there were plenty of birds to hunt. So that was the origins of the National Wildlife Refuges. Uh, it's since evolved to be more wildlife protection, but initially it was about uh, shooting birds. All right, so um, there are now five wildlife refuges uh, in the Klamath Basin. More than 80% of the wetlands in, in the wildlife refuges have now been drained for agriculture. Uh, by federal law that's allowable. Um, the refuges support approximately uh, several million uh, migrating waterfowl, if you can call that support, we'll show you some pictures. And the largest population of, of uh, bald eagles are supported in the Bear Valley Natural Wildlife Refuge. So of the five refuges, they all have very important functions in terms of uh, providing wildlife uh, protection. There's the wildlife refuge. Yeah, not very good. There's the farming on the National Wildlife Refuge. There is the commercial fishing. And let me go all the way to, in 2001, the conflict leads to marshals being posted at the headgates. Those are the head gates of the Klamath Basin. Marshals being posted at the head gates, protecting the head gates from the farmers and rabble rousers who are claiming to try to open up the gates in order to let water flow. Uh, the Bureau of Reclamation shuts off the water in order to protect the fish, both in the upper and the lower basins. And in fact, history repeats itself. That's what's happening again this year. Water users are again threatening to open up those gates and again uh, marshals are required in order to protect those gates. You're tuned to All Volunteer Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. They aren't making any more water to appropriate an adage that realtors use in relation to land. On land, fresh water is plentiful in some parts of the world, but very scarce in others. The western United States is an area where there's always been a limited supply. And Professor Don Negri says since people started using more of it, we've set legal limits on who has rights to the water. But there isn't as much water available as the laws say we can use. The Willamette University History Department retiree reviewed a big geographical region, the Klamath Basin, and its water history with an overview of what we face with more need than supply of clean water. 
and I'm sorry for running long. Go ahead, Russ. Thank you, Don, very much. I certainly would have a lot of questions myself as an economist, but one of the, uh, I'll give you the first question before I turn it over to Dr. Hans West, who will do all the questions. It seems to me that possibly the most inefficient use is the agriculture in terms of a lot of water for creating a lot of output. And especially if the society values the incredible bird refuge and, and fishing uh, and general environmental interests, buying out uh, agricultural lands and restore, returning to, say, wetlands or whatever, at least taking that use off, would, yeah. uh, off the uh, board might be uh, one of the high-quality solutions. Do you agree? I mean, go to other questions. Absolutely, Russ. Um, until the last maybe 20 years, that just wasn't possible under the law. California, Oregon, other Western states have been um, uh, rearranging and modifying the law in order to allow for transfers such as that. But prior to that, there was no water rights for fish. There was no water rights for waterfowl. And they were always, environment was always at the bottom of the list. And in fact, water is more valuable in stream under those circumstances, but until uh, the evolution of these laws more recently, those kinds of transfers were not possible. And in fact, 80 to 90% of the water is also going to agriculture for which they are growing crops that aren't particularly valuable. The whole system is inefficient and doesn't allow for uh, the water to flow, if you will, to the highest valued use. Hello there, I'm Hans West and I'm on Programs Committee and I will take some questions here from the attendees. This is from Neil. If you were king of the world, how would you change or replace the prior appropriation model? That's a very difficult question. Uh, clearly, there has to be ways in which water can be transferred from low-valued uses to high-valued uses. And that is beginning to show up in the water law and in water practices in the West. That's a good thing. The problem is, is that water is so well integrated and connected that once you take water from area A to area B, you also affect the groundwater in the area A. You also affect the other users in area A. And it creates a um, ripple effect that is hard to manage and hard to understand. The other part of this is none of this takes account for the social justice associated with providing water to its highest valued use rather than to individuals and people and poor communities that might need that water for other purposes. It, it, it is such a difficult way, uh, a difficult question in which to answer in order to accommodate all in a fair way, all the users, but clearly this mechanism is broken and it needs to be unbroken bits at a time such that uh, we move toward allowing water to get moved from place to place in, into its higher valued use. I'm not sure that, because it's such a complicated question, I, I'm not sure I gave you the, the best possible answer because frankly, I, I don't know how I would do it if I were king of the world or even queen. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you for your humility. Uh, that's good to know. Um, so there is one more, uh, well, quickly, I wanna tell folks, please use the raised hand or the question and answer. I see some questions coming in under chat and um, that was supposed to have been disabled, but I will take one from there. Effic quote, efficiency, end quote, means favoring the highest dollar value use, question mark. Yeah, yes, it, it does. There are other values, uh, namely equity, justice, that have to be integrated into any um, mechanism for allocating water. But right now we have farmers who are growing crops that are not particularly valuable that go to feeding cattle. And, and the whole thing is being subsidized by the federal government. 
and we aren't growing the kinds of crops, nor are we investing in the kinds of uh, irrigation technology that can save, um, uh, can save water. Remember, it's use it or lose it, meaning that if you invest in a irrigation technology uh, conservation and you use less water, you've lost the right to that water. And uh, that doesn't create a necessary incentive for people to make those kinds of investments. So there's, there's a role for the, the law to change. There's a role for the federal government to uh, be part of the uh, uh, solution in terms of reducing subsidies and increasing subsidies for conservation and providing for in-stream uses. That's happening, but it's happening extraordinarily slowly. All right, thank you. Next, we'll take a question and answer from Bernadette Hansen. Uh, are we finding these issues facing climate in the rest of Oregon, uh, Central Oregon, Eastern Oregon? All question there. And I would like to extrapolate just a little bit on that question. Can we expect to see most or a lot of the West uh, with uh, such complicated issues when it comes to the water rights? Yeah, we are, we are seeing that. For those of you who have followed, look at the Colorado River. I mean, it's the same, it's, it's the same issue all over the West. There is more allocation to users than there is water available. And that includes, in the case of the Colorado River, uh, cities all up and down, including Los Angeles, which gets a lot of water. All, all the agriculture, tribes, waterfowl. Uh, if you drive down uh, to the Bay Area and happen to pass Lake Shasta, if you can even see it, uh, you'll notice that there's very little water in that resource. And it's causing conflict, serious conflict, serious hardship. Uh, and yet, there's no mechanism, uh, or at least no evolving mechanism in order to make better use of that water and provide for adequate, uh, better use of the water that we have. Thank you. Uh, Cindy Condon, here you can ask your question. Hi there, Dr. Negri, thank you for being here. Um, a question for you, how is value determined? Is there a set structure? Where okay, um, itemized or yeah, you get the gist. Yeah. Uh, okay, I got to put my economist hat on. Uh, value is determined by uh, what people are irrigators or um, domestic users or cities are willing to pay for the water. All right. So it's a market that's going to determine, in some sense, that value. In, in some cases, we have farmers paying, um, and I'll use some numbers made up, they're paying about $25 an acre foot for their water to put on their land to grow alfalfa for cattle. The city of, let's say Salem, is willing to pay $200 an acre foot in order to provide water uh, to the people who live in this city. That's a significant discrepancy, and that's just a small one. Um, and the, the, what it says is, we are using water to produce something that we don't value as much as we value something else, all right? If you drive down to uh, um, Sacramento, you'll see outside of Sacramento that they're growing rice. Rice is the most water intensive crop that can be grown. It takes more water to grow rice than any other crop in the world. And yet, because those individuals have those property rights, they get to use that water to grow rice, even though that water may be more valuable in terms of providing protection for endangered species. It's broken. So is, I'm sorry, just a quick follow-up. Is that set in statute or that you can only uh, consider the economic benefit? Uh, no, it's not, in, it's not in statute. The economic benefits are important because the economic benefits create incentives to use water better. But as I've kept saying, you cannot and should not make laws or policy that don't also incorporate 
social justice, equity, fairness, which makes it all that much harder because there are poor people who do not have adequate access to a uh, essential element of survival. And how do you deal with, how do you both move water to where it's more valuable at the same time of not uh, interfere with that sense of justice to the people who might need it? There's uh, three questions here under Q&A that I'd like to just read the three and because I think they're similar. From Heather Swanson, do you feel that reducing the subsidizing of water costs would help balance the uses? From Sally Holloman, um, is there any effort to buying out farmers by the federal government? Uh, Molly Dinsdale, the same. Number one, there's a great deal of benefit not providing water to the water users at prices below what it costs uh, that's just that's just the United States government subsidizing uh, agricultural use and producing crops which are not particularly uh, as valued as we would like to have. That that that's a big mistake. The, the second one, the question was about Hans. What well, was the second? Well, the, yes, uh, buying out farmers. Ah, yes. Um, in the Klamath Basin, the uh, Klamath users, and this is a part I didn't get to, they worked out an agreement between all of those uh, stakeholders. It took them 10 years to work out that agreement as to how they could make the whole system work better for everybody. 10 years of negotiation, they had a, a long written agreement as to how each of the users would be better off under that agreement. It required that the federal government buy out some of the upper basin water users so as to provide more water for the system and to adequately compensate those individuals who lost their water rights and lost their land. Except it was $900 million. And the federal government said, no, we're not doing that. The whole thing in 2005, no, 15. And the whole thing in 2015 falls apart and we're still negotiating the same thing uh, eight years, seven years later, Uh, no change. Uh, And yes, it requires that there's intervention on the part of the government in order to provide some sense of fairness to all the players, but that just hasn't happened. Well done, thank you. I I think we have two more questions, but I'm not sure we have the time. Uh, At this point, I wanna thank you again for uh, giving us all this useful background. It really has been um, very, very uh, interesting. You've been listening to Willamette University Professor Emeritus Don Negri talking about water scarcity, how we use H2O, and how our needs, plans, and our laws clash with the reality of a short supply of fresh water here in western states like Oregon and specifically the Klamath Basin region. KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program. And you can go to SalemCityClub.com to listen again to the entire program posted in their archive. This is Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting local news and public information for the Mid-Willamette Valley. This program is aired on Friday at noon and repeated Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening.